peace to you. Thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. We are going to go into the Gospels. We're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5 is where we left off. Now, I know if you're looking in the listing here on Anchor, you won't see Luke chapter 4 mentioned. It may be on some of the other platforms also. Um, that's because I read it, but it um, there was a problem with the upload, at least on one of the platforms. So um, I'm sorry if it um, if you didn't get to see it there. But if you didn't get to hear listen to it there, you can see an archive of the different Gospels specifically that we've already gone through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, two chapters in the book of Acts and the book of Revelation for free on my website at tonguetgirl.com just go to the spirit page there um it's an adults only site so i warn you before you go there um so if you can get over seeing nudity which we're all born naked the rest is drag dress resembling a guy or a girl that's what the acronym stands for um so it shouldn't be that big a deal seeing nudity but so all that being said if you want to listen to the chapter um the reading we did on the book of luke um or any of the others go there to my website and check it out it's free and it's the visual version so you can actually see the gospels and me reading along with you there and get an understanding better understanding of how well my understanding is of the gospels specifically and since we focus on the red letters that's why only the gospels the things that are words attributed to Jesus are there on the site. Um, these other platforms, we're on the other parts of the Bible uh, on the other days of the week, but these Saturday nights are for the Gospels. All that being said, let's begin with Luke chapter 5, verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Genesaret. So the Hebrew talking about is Jesus. He's on the move with his mission and um, it, this, according to the heading here, it looks like we're going to be gathering the disciples. And you can look in a map and see where the Lake of Genesaree is. All I know, it's it's basically the, what we think of as the Holy Land. Uh, also, Middle East, verse 2. And saw two boats standing by the lake when the fishermen had gone from them and was washing their nets. So Jesus sees two boats, but the boats don't have the fishermen in them. Verse 3, then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. So Jesus has uh, commandeered Simon Peter's, that's his other name, as he'll be known by in the Gospels, his boat. And he's apparently not there in it. Jesus went on up in it and seized it. Verse 4, and began teaching, by the way, and multitudes are there listening to him. Verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let out your nets for a catch. So now Jesus is addressing the owner of the boat, uh, Simon Peter, and telling him what to do with his property. Um, he's not saying, hey, I'm sorry, I needed to use your boat. Nothing like that. He, he apparently is just meeting him and he's telling him what to do. Uh, verse 5, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, We've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. So Simon Peter is saying to Jesus, man, I've been trying all night. We've been working at it all night trying to get some fish. But 
I'm trusting you because he he addressed Jesus as master when he made his statement to go ahead and give it a try anyway. So um, verse six, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So the moment in this instance, when Peter Simon realized that um, he's used to doing things a certain way, he'd gone all night in this case, doing things the way he knew them. But now at the word of this new message from Jesus, he's willing to go ahead and give it a try. And as soon as he gives it a try, he immediately it immediately yields good results for him. Now, suddenly, there's a whole bunch of fish. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So now they've got more than enough, more than they can handle, so much more that Simon's own boat and the partner with him, presumably the two other brothers um, that will be introduced to soon, or at least they'll be named, um, um, their boat began to sink. It was so many fish. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. So um, if you're reading along with me, uh, you can see that as some other verses we've read before um you i feel you should be careful in what you're reading even if it's in the bible especially especially when you're reading it out loud jesus tells us that in um other words i was paraphrasing there but what he tells us is be careful what you hear um those things that you hear audibly that you're actually listening to can even be your own words and like he tells us in matthew 12 37 by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. So all that being said, like I've said before, we manifest things, I believe, in our Christian walk through the things we say, even in inadvertently. So if you say what Simon just said, um, begging God to depart from you, don't be surprised if you find yourself forsaken, even if that's not what you meant. That's what he's saying. And notice that, now that I think about it, that's how he's beginning his um interaction with Jesus here in this gospel. And that's similar to his end, um, at least toward the end of Jesus' ministry at that time in the flesh, if you understand what I'm saying. When the crucifixion time came for Jesus' arrest and all of that preceding it, um, all the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. And one disciple in particular, Simon, this same Simon Peter, um, at that point denies that he even knows Jesus, not once, not twice, but three different times. So I think it's just it's kind of interesting to see that he starts out his uh, at his relationship with Jesus as it's documented here with ask with begging him to leave him alone to depart from him and confessing that he is sinful. That's why um, uh, now hopefully it makes it clear why I didn't say the first part. I wouldn't want Jesus God to depart from me, but the second part about being a sinful man. I have no problem saying that. It's truthful. So um, just to understand why if you read it as we read it, um, in case it's your first time reading it. So um, he's um, humbled at the fact that Jesus' presence was able to turn things around. When he'd been working at it all night, his profession, catching nothing, suddenly Jesus comes along, preaches a message to the people, and then gives him the command uh, to let down his net and suddenly he's and his partners are full of fish verse 9 for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish 
truth being taken. So as you're saying, he's amazed. Verse 10, and also his partners were, verse 10. And so, oh, oh, sorry, it is right here, verse 10. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So just like I was saying earlier, we're introduced to the first three disciples by name, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James also, and his brother John, their partners in fishery. Um, and they're all amazed at Jesus' ability uh, and preaching um, and apparently his first miracle here in this gospel. We know in another gospel, the first miracle he performs that people take note of is when he turns water into wine, which flips on the head all those Bible thumper theories that wine, booze, liquor, alcohol is sinful, evil in itself. Clearly it's not. Why would Jesus make that his first miracle in that gospel? In this gospel, as he's gathering the, God, the disciples, uh, the first miracle he performs uh, in this gospel is with the fish, the amazing catch of fish for fishermen who weren't able to catch anything on their own. Not one, not two, not three, but four fishermen, partners in the business of catching fish. Um, so verse 11, so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So the happening was uh, astounding enough for the disciples, for the first four, uh, two sets of brothers, disciples, um, to leave their business, their um, livelihood, and follow Jesus. Verse 12, and it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and imported him, saying, I'm sorry, implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So leprosy, like we've talked about before when we've come across it in the readings, is um, a, a disease, um, and it's a, some in some cases contagious. It might always be contagious, but um, it's at least contagious in the times we've read about it here. Um, I'm sorry, in here in the, you know, in the readings and in the Bible. So it's someone who's having to, according to the religious customs that we've read about, socially distance themselves. And we all understand that with all that's happening with COVID. Same thing was happening back then with leprosy. Uh, it was considered an abomination to have it, a uh, sin. And to, um, he was considered contaminated to have it. Um, so he's approaching Jesus looking for some help. And he's fallen on his face, humbling himself and begging for the help. And he knows that Jesus is able to help him. Clearly, he's heard about his reputation. Maybe he's followed him for some time and seen it for himself, the things that Jesus has, was able to say and do. Um, so it's not a question of his, him believing if Jesus is able to do it or not. His question to Jesus, his statement to Jesus was, Lord, so he's addressing Jesus as God Almighty, the Lord. And he's saying, if you're willing. So he's not saying, uh, if you're able to, he's saying, if you're willing. He has faith in Jesus' ability to do it. He just wonders if he's willing to. In the same way, we look around at some of the evil things that happen from things like um, the pollution of the water, the land, the air, the uh, discrimination, and ignorance, and hate in the um, so-called justice system and legal system and 
and policing. We see it in the bias and even the bias, the hidden bias in the white supremacy of everything. Because even in the most recent uh, headline making, killing of a black person, it's making headlines and everybody's mentioning that the officers who are being charged immediately with uh, murder uh, are all black. Notice how different, and none of, no one talks about how the fact that the same events happen with the same type of victim, a black person, a black male, and uh, but if the officers weren't black, if the officers, for instance, with the ones who uh, murdered George Floyd, uh, if they're not black, if the officers aren't black, victim is still black, but the officers aren't black, then there's no rush to judgment. There's never a showing of their faces, putting out their names, and immediately calling it murder because your own eyes can see from the video that it's murder. If you see an example of that is in what happened with George Floyd. It took years, years it's taken to charge the group of officers that did that to him. And we saw his killing, his murder on video. Why is it so, and for that whole time, until one of them got convicted, um, it was always alleged that they were the alleged murderers of George Floyd. Or in their case, they still only narrow it down to the one who put his knee on the man's neck and murdered him. They still don't really address the others as murderers. They still allow the others to take plea deals, offer plea deals to the others, even though none of the others cooperated in the murder trial of the first, the one first one convicted of murder. Yet you see a totally different approach to their innocence and guilt because they're not black. So the same white supremacy steps in even there because the ones who were on video watching and helping paid to enforce the law, but instead breaking the law and aiding and abetting a murder of George Floyd, there's no rush to judgment for them. There was cover up of their and making sure there was concern for all of their rights being available to them and every effort along the way to plea it down. No murder charge at all, but now immediately, immediately as it happens, you see a different standard. And no one talks about that aspect of the white supremacy that lets people know that the black officers who trust in backing the blue and that whole movement are trusting in the wind because that doesn't apply to them. In the same way, the justice for all doesn't apply to black people, it clearly. Example after example after example, black people don't get the same presumption of innocence or the same consequences when the and when the when it's obvious that there's guilt when there's video evidence, for instance. Um, so it's it's just um, it's sad how um, the theatrics of it all to distract people from what's happening when the truth of things is right there in your face and yet it's kind of hidden. It's sad. So anyway, verse 12. So Jesus is dealing with the leper who's had to um, socially distance himself because remember the religious ordinances in this religion that Jesus is born into, not the same religion. If you want to call it religion, the truth that Jesus teaches us as the gospel, it's not the same thing. There's different religions in the Bible. There's different belief systems, different people being identified and addressed as Lord in the Bible. Jesus is one of them, the one that we as Christians choose as our Lord. He's not the first one listed in the Bible, and um, but he's and he's absolutely not the only one listed in the Bible, as we've talked about again and again and again. 
So verse 13, he put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. So Jesus recognized that what the real question was that the man was asking. He noticed that the man didn't say if you're able to. He noticed the man's uh, statement was if you are willing to. So Jesus addresses that willingness and says, I am willing. So just that freely, just like that, the man's leprosy, the thing that's been plaguing him literally, is gone. Verse 14, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So Jesus is saying to the um, man who's now healed, the, the former leper, um, telling him what it is he should do. He's telling him, don't go broadcasting it. Instead, go straight to the religious authorities. That's who the priests are. The priest is that Jesus is referring to here, the priest of the religion Jesus was born into. But again, not the same religion Jesus preaches, if you're going to call it a religion, if you want to think of Christianity or in our case, red letter Christianity as a religion. Um, um, so it's not the same thing. But he's telling him to go to the priest of that religion and do what that religion tells you to do. And what that religion tells you to do is make an animal sacrifice. We've read about that um, in our other daily readings. And that and Moses is who he's referring to. The Moses he's referring to, Jesus is referring to here, is that same Moses we read about in our other daily readings back in the book of um, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books. Um, that's that same Moses and those same words that Jesus is telling him to reflect back on. And he's doing that, I believe, for a reason. Verse 15. Moreover, however, the report went around concerning him all the more. And great multitudes came together to him and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So even, Joe, even though Jesus told him to keep it on the low, just go straight to the priests, the religious folks, and make an offering to, to them, um, he told him to just do that. Maybe in doing that, because it doesn't say if the man um, was obedient to what Jesus told him to do as far as the offering and as far as keeping it quiet or not, um, one way or the other, words still got out. I think what I was going to say was um, that the reason I think the reason Jesus told him to go and make the offering to the religious leaders was because then they have to note it. The religious people who end up um, being behind the crucifixion would have to take notice of that one of their citizens, one of their parishioners, one of the people coming to their church, even though it's not a church, obviously, a synagogue, temple, what, um, whatever the case may be, want, they'd have to take notice of the fact that the person um, they know was a, uh, afflicted with leprosy before, and also they know now that person is healed somehow. And the somehow they have to take notice of it because the person is making an offering. An offering to them is just like gold, like we've read about on our other daily readings. Um, um, the offering is the system, the religious system that is set up where it's like law enforcement. The uh, religious leaders note where you've offended in their law, broken their statutes and ordinances, and fine you for it. And the people that just so happen to get enriched from the fine are those same priests, the law enforcement, the religious law enforcement. And whether it's a chicken, a goat, a cow, 
two cows, whatever the case may be, some money, some wine, some flour. We read about it being all those different things. It's right here in the Bible in black and white. Um, you can see it. Um, those that are different things that, that are set up that the people have to pay. When the holy folks, the religious leaders, the priests fine you for breaking their uh, ordinances, their law, their statutes, not the same thing as their laws. The laws, um, uh, specifically the commandments, I should say, are those just those big 10, those 10 that Moses got originally um, believed to have been from God Almighty given to him on the mountain. Um, and some of those Jesus affirms even in the um, gospels here. The rest of those things that we've read about and continue to read about in what we call the Old Testament are not the same thing. They're not commandments. They uh, are not gospel, obviously, because Jesus didn't say them. Only the red letters are officially gospel as far as Christianity goes. Doesn't mean the rest of it, the Bible or anything else you want to believe has to be thrown out. It just has to be in its own lane. So you understand that you may want to conflate religion with Christianity, but it actually is not. It's only Christianity if it's something Jesus said. Um, and it makes that these red letters in plain English. So if he didn't say them, it's not Christianity. Again, still believe what you want to believe. Just don't conflate it with don't believe it's the same thing as what Jesus said and Christianity. It's not. And if you believe it is, it's easy to get confused. And once you get confused, it's easy to turn away and or fall away even. Anyway, so um, he's given them the command what to do. And even though um, one way or the other, word is still spread that he, the man, was healed. And it seems people are glad and amazed by the fact that Jesus is able to do a miracle like that, healing someone like that. No medicine, no vaccines, no shots. Verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So um, Jesus is popular, but he still um, values, makes time for being alone, uh, what you may think of as alone, but not really alone, one on one time with God. Um, as Jesus tells us, um, that the disciples are going to leave him alone, yet I'm not really alone because the Father is with me. I believe that applies to us Christians also when it seems sometimes that there's no one around, no one there for us, no one there with us. Uh, that's those are the times, in, at all times, we should believe God is with us. God is aware, watching, even um, tuned into what's happening to us. If we have that connection, if we create that connection, feed and nourish that connection with God. Um, verse 17, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So the holy folks, the religious leaders, they're, they've come out from all the different areas. That's who the Pharisees and so forth are. And, from, uh, and they've come and, and they're witnessing um, Jesus' healing powers. Verse 18, Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. So someone who can't move, who's paralyzed, has been brought in 
into Jesus's presence to presumably get help so that he can get movement, get motion, get walking again, or whatever it is that's paralyzed on him. Verse 18, and when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So the people weren't just giving up at it, the first obstacle. They saw they couldn't get through the masses of people there trying to get close to Jesus, get in touch with hands on or Jesus get his hands on them. Um, they weren't going to be. Uh, they're not going to give up on that, on still trying to get FaceTime with Jesus. So instead of trying to make their way through the crowd, they've instead broken through the roof of where they know Jesus to be, um, to let down the paralyzed person into Jesus' presence. All that to get his attention because they can't get through the crowd because there's that many people looking for help themselves. And they have to also be looking for help themselves um, more so than just amazed at the miracles, because I would think if you you saw someone, when you see an ambulance coming with its siren on, you move out of the way so that it can, the people who need help can get to it. So I'm guessing the crowds aren't clearing a path for the paralyzed person because they too need an ambulance. They need some help too. And they want Jesus's uh, uh, touch, help also. So they aren't just clearing out of the way for one other person. They're probably thinking, get in line. Verse 8:20. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus is moved to the point of um, moved by the fact that they're willing to um say, bump the crowd. We've got to get him into Jesus' presence. We've got to get some help from this man who we know can help him. So you've actually torn through the roof of the house of someone you don't know, Simon's house, I think it's where they're at, um, to get help for your friend. So Jesus is extremely moved by this. Um, let me just go look and see. No, it was, um, was it at Simon's house? Let's see, verse 17. It says he was there a certain day and he was teaching. Doesn't say where exactly he's at. Maybe it will at some point. I seem to recall this being at Simon's house, though. But um, either way, Jesus has told the person, not man, you're healed, or man, wow, I can't believe you wanted to see me that bad. Like wanted to get this close to get an autograph. Instead, he tells the man, man. Your sins are forgiven you. So the man wasn't looking for his sins to be forgiven. He was looking for his para paralysis to pass so that he could move, presumably walk again. If he could walk, he wouldn't need his friends to lower him down through uh, the roof. So I'm guessing he probably couldn't walk, but he, maybe he was quadriplegic. Maybe he couldn't move at all. Um, whatever the case may be, Jesus didn't address his physical need of um, the paralysis and being healed from that. Instead, Jesus first addresses, uh, first he addresses the fact that he sees it as faith. Um, but, well, he's not saying that. Let me correct that. Because it's not red letters, the part about faith. That's the narrator. 
presumably Luke or whoever has passed it on, letting us know that what Jesus, um, Jesus' reaction is of the, based on the man's faith in um, believing that Jesus has the power to help him um, to the point that he's willing to do property damage and get the people who are carrying him, transporting him, to participate in that property damage and lower him down in front of Jesus's presence. Um, but it's the narrator letting us know it's faith, um, that they believe it's faith that um, Jesus is reacting to. That's not clear. It seems like that's probably the case though, because it would be kind of like, wow, you're a super fan. You're willing to go through all that to get close to me. He's, um, Jesus is, um, but what Jesus is talking about is not his physical need, not the paralysis. Instead, Jesus is talking about his spiritual need, the condition of his soul. Verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're basically saying, who does he think he is that he can say that someone's sins are forgiven? And they consider it blasphemous because they consider it's talking bad, talking big, talking against God. That's basically what blasphemy is. Verse 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? So it says here, Jesus is perceiving their thoughts as if he's a mind reader, heart reader, as a friend of mine used to say, a heart knower. Um even though it didn't quite make sense, the whole gnosis thing, but it's, um, here it's, um, here it's clear. Jesus is able to understand what's on their minds and in their hearts because he's specifically in their hearts. He's responding to what their thoughts are, what it is they seem to be, um, thinking among themselves and what he responds with is wondering What's it to you? Why is it on your mind what's going on uh, with me and with this person who's come to me? Verse 23, which is easier to say, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up and walk? So he knows they have questions on their mind about how dare he, who does he think he is? Um, so he comes at them with the question of which one is easier? What's what would be more astounding to um, just say, hey, your sins are forgiven you, something no one would be able to measure because only God knows what our sins are. Sometimes people can tell what our sins are too, but God only knows the state of whether our sins are forgiven or not. So um, that sort of uh, subjective thing that you can assume, oh yeah, God forgives them. Oh yeah, God forgave her before she passed away. You could have all those kinds of thoughts. Um, subjectively, and maybe right, maybe wrong. But the objective thing, Jesus is telling them, um, he's saying the option that's objective would be saying, rise up and walk. He's saying, which one do you think would be more faith affirming? Which one would prove that he has the authority um, to forgive sins and also um, heal people? It, by just saying your sins are forgiven you, the same thing priests and things will tell you in modern times, especially if you put a donation into the religion, um, they'll forgive you your sin, of your sins. They'll absolve you of your, of your sins. 
But will they heal you? Will they be able to make you walk again if you're paralyzed? Jesus is asking them, which one is easier? Say, hey, say, hey, man, your sins are forgiven you. Even if someone has wronged you, um, to come to the point and say, hey, you're forgiven, to let it go. Which one is easier to just say something that is subjectively proven? Um, you, it's, an, it's an article of faith. You either believe it or you don't. Or something that's objectively proven. Anyone can see it. If you say to someone, your sins are forgiven you, um, and or rise up and walk, and that it's equivalent to their sins being forgiven, since that's how Jesus started this out with the paralyzed person looking for help, then it's sort of undeniable. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. So Jesus is saying so that they don't get it twisted, he's going to make it clear. He's now, instead of going any further with them, since clearly they didn't, they didn't answer which one was easier, they could have said, you know, anybody can say your sins are forgiven you, but God is the only one who can forgive. So anything else won't believe you. But then if he makes the man walk, then what do you say? Or they can say, um, you can may heal him. of, uh, You can re recover his walk and you can heal his paralysis because he may not have been able to walk or you can heal his paralysis, but um, that doesn't mean uh, you can also forgive his sins. So instead, Jesus opened up with your sins have forgiven you. So if he's able to do one, he must be able to do the other. Other since in their by their own statement, only God's able to do that. So if he's able to heal the sickness, the paralysis then that stands to reason. He must also have authority to forgive sins, just like he said. So um, he's saying in verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who's paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. So let's take bit by bit what Jesus just said. He's saying um, the reason he's doing it is for proof to them, for proof to us so that it can be documented, so that they can know that he, the Son of Man, he's saying it in the third person, he's talking about himself, letting us know he's fulfilling that role that is, is uh, prophesied from the Old Testament, or as we call it, the scriptures, as they call it, um, from um, the Old Testament about the Son of Man prophecies. He's letting it, making it clear. He's the fulfillment of those prophecies. He's that Son of Man. And he has the authority to forgive sins. He says power on earth to forgive sins. So there could, that's a pretty loaded statement considering the other things we've read about space and time um, from Jesus' other red letters. He could just be saying power on earth to forgive sins um, as a general statement. And I know this may sound crazy um, to say in the world, but it may also mean something deeper. Like maybe Jesus, just like he tells us to preach the gospel to all the creatures, to all the world and every creature. And maybe the gospel, um, the words have been taken to other civilizations throughout the universe. Um, and it wasn't rejected. Uh, didn't need a crucifixion. Didn't need to prove it. God only knows. And again, I know it may sound crazy, but it's a huge universe. It's a small world after all, but it's a huge universe. 
Um, so lots of different possibilities. And the gospel, as the gospel tells us, the God all things are possible. So anyway, Jesus is telling the paralyzed person. Um, first, he tells the, the, the Pharisees, the religious folks, that just so that you can understand, so that you don't misunderstand what's happening with the authority that's present in front of them, Jesus. Now he's addressing the person that actually needs the help, the paralyzed person, the one who's let down through the roof because he had the faith to believe that Jesus could help him. He says to him, arise, says get up, take up your bed. So get up what you, get up, take up what you've been relying on and go to your house and make your own way back to comfort, to safety. What you know as comfort and safety, if you're blessed to have it. Not everybody has a home, a house. That is most everywhere. Not everyone has a home, but just about everyone has some place that they consider. Uh, uh, some. Not everyone has a house, but every, just everyone has some place they consider home. But not everyone, sadly, even in a nation like America, filthy rich, uh, but filthy corrupt also. Um, anyway another subject so anyway he's saying take up your bed and go to your house he's telling the person you're healed get up what you've been sleeping on and relying on and head home verse 25 immediately he rose up before them took up what he had been lying on and departed to his own house glorifying god so immediately the person was obedient to what jesus said and it turned out it was a healing he was able to get up Take what he'd been lying on, able and willing to. Because remember, in case of approaching God, in this case Jesus, this wasn't a question of ability, it was a question of willingness. Now Jesus has told him what to do. Um, take up what you're lying on. Clearly, he was willing to. He took up what he'd been relying on and lying on. And able to now take up what he'd been sleeping on, living on, and headed home. And they were all, verse 26, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we've seen strange things today. So uh, the people are amazed at what Jesus is able to do, and they've headed on home, or uh, at least this part of the chapter is wrapped up with the people mystified at the things Jesus is able to do. Verse 27, after these things, he went out and saw tax collecting named Levi, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So on to the next disciple, Levi, also known as Matthew, same uh, one credited with the book of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is encountering now. And he's, uh, uh, first words to him, follow me. Um, Christian message, red letters, um, the point of it, follow Jesus, what it is Jesus has to say. Follow these red letters. Verse 28. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. So he's obediently hearing what Jesus had to say and doing what Jesus told him to. Verse 29. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. So Matthew slash Levi, same person, um, is throwing a party for Jesus at his house at his house for Jesus, um, and a whole bunch of people showed up, and some of them weren't so, uh, weren't so uh, high up on social status. Some of them were tax collectors, which are generally avoided, hated, 
why most people avoid it this year, even if I hate it. Um, and others who sat down with them. So Matthew has connections with the government. He himself is a tax collector, and he has other tax collectors there with him. So he's despised, uh, most likely. Verse 20, verse 30, And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So holy folks are wondering, what's up with that? Why are your, Why is your religious leader eating and drinking? With tax collectors, despised people, and sinners, not clear what their sins are. Verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So, the um, religious people are challenging his disciples. The person who responds to their challenge is Jesus, the head. And he um, gives them a message that, you don't see the hospital, the doctor's office, the minute clinic filled with people who don't need it. People who are waiting around at the clinic, in line at the hospital, waiting at the waiting list in the waiting room are people who need it. The people who are seeking Jesus are the people who need it. People who want, seek salvation are the ones seeking Jesus. Otherwise, they're not there. Verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is saying, and this is who I want, the people who come seeking me. I'm not out to call people who feel like heaven is theirs no matter what they do. That's not what I'm looking for. The message and the opportunity is open to them as well. But uh, the ones who actually need it are the ones at the, in the ER, the ones at the doctor's office, the ones who know there's something that needs help. And Jesus is the one able, if he's willing, to help. Verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So now the religious people are asking Jesus uh, about his cousin, John the Baptist, um, and how his disciples behave, and also how... Um, how different it is from how the Pharisees, how they observe religious fasting and the dietary rules and stuff, which, as we've read before, are very fluid. They're not written in stone. They shift from here to there to there to there. Um, and they're all in the Bible. So it comes down to an article of faith. Which religion are you under? What do you actually believe? They're not all the same thing, and they are all in the Bible. Um, so anyway, they're wondering about what's going on with your dietary things. Why um, are you um, and your disciples doing something different? Verse 34, he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? So they've asked Jesus a question. He's used his popular, with them anyway, technique of asking them a question, answering their question with a question. And he's asking them, uh, well, um, do you have a bridal shower after the wedding? Do you have a, a, do the groomsmen celebrate and throw a party for him after the wedding? Or do you do it before the wedding? You do it before the wedding. You get it all out before the wedding. You celebrate, you play it up, you party before the wedding. Because you know, once you're married, all of that stuff's going to be gone. 
So you see the same thing here. The disciples are doing these different things, casting aside the different uh, shackles of the dietary regulations that shift from this to that to the other, which we've read some of so far in the Old Testament, as we call it. Um, why would they be mourning and fasting when God is right there with them? And the one who made everything available to us is right there with them. Uh, verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. So like I was saying, the time for the bridal shower, for the, uh, the I don't know why it always sticks in my mind, what, what it's called when the men throw it for the guy. Um, but the bachelor party, yeah. Why would you do that after the wedding? Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The proper order is to party before because you know the one you're partying with, the one you're having a good time with, the one you're making all these memories with, uh, it's going to be different real soon. Same thing with Jesus. Verse 35. Um, oh, we read that one. Verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. So Jesus is talking about fabrics and fashion and design and clothing construction um, and the fact that if you get a patch in your clothes and you don't want to or don't, aren't able to get a new article of clothes or want to save that piece of clothing, you can use a patch to save it. But when you put the patch in there, you don't want to use brand new fabric that you picked up at Joann's or somewhere for that patch. I mean, nothing against Joann's. Great place. Um, and she sells stuff that's pretty strong. So you can actually get it from Joann's too. But So if you do get it, wherever you get it from, make sure it's not a piece that hasn't already been washed. Because once it's washed, it will shrink. Like I said, some places make pre-shrunk stuff available to you. Or you can take a patch out of something else. Um, it won't necessarily match, um, but you can do it. So um, that's what Jesus is saying there with the patch. When you take something new and try to make it in, when a match with something old, it's not going to match. Same thing can be said of the religious dogma that we've read about that the Pharisees are under, that they've challenged him with uh, again and again. Is um, It's an old system. And they're trying to make their old ways, what we think of as the Old Testament and the, the things set up in it, match the new covenant, the new relationship that humanity can have. It's an option, it's a choice with God through Jesus or not. Um, and so, but trying to make them fit, it's not going to work. Just like trying to make a patch of new fabric fit in a patch of old. Verse 37, and no one puts a new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. So like we've talked about before, when it comes to winemaking, booze, so on and so forth, fermenting grapes, or whatever mash you're using to make your booze, if you don't have a vent, it will explode, um, because there are gases that are formed, and much like faith, you can't see it, but you can still believe it's there. It um, does give you signs, just like faith, if you look for them, that it's there, like the expansion of the skin that it's in, or 
like I said, if it's a sealed bottle, the bursting of the bottle, the popping of the cork, whatever it is it's in expanding, you'll see signs that though you can't see it, there are gases being created. The fermentation is happening. So um, in the same way, Jesus is saying, trying to make what he's preaching and teaching and bringing to the table, the main course for us Christians, um, isn't going to fit in with the old style of belief, the things even here in what are the Bible. The Bible wasn't written by one person. The Bible um, is a collection of books inside of one book. And like we've said again and again, there are different religions throughout it. Um, and trying to make Jesus' words fit into them will burst the wineskins wide open like an uncorked um, bottle you're fermenting grapes in. Verse 28. I'm sorry, 38. Um, but no... But, but new wine must be put into new wine skins, and both are preserved. So Jesus is saying, um, not throw away the old, old wine, like we said again and again about our other daily readings. Not that the Old Testament should be discarded, thrown out, um, not at all, but instead preserved and set aside as what it is, not conflating it with the gospel truth, with the things Jesus said with um with what's our way of salvation as christians don't put the two together they won't fit and also you're going to ruin um both you'll ruin the old and the new because they're not going to match um but you can't preserve both verse 39 and no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new for he says the old is better so people for different reasons will think that the old whether it be the Old Testament or the old wine, is better. They'll say it's been around longer. Other uh, religions are based on some of the things that are listed in it. Uh, it uh, there are other sources that may point to different parts of it. So they'll uh, say it's better and will cling to it as something that you have to live by. Everything from Genesis to Revelation, thumpers will think and say nonsense like that. Um, but that's not the case. You can um, live by, you can understand that all those different things, these different books and what we call the Bible, point to different people's interpretation or understanding of what God was to them, what the Lord is to them, who God is to them, um, without um, conflating that with, without believing that that also is Christianity. Because again and again, we've seen it just isn't. It's not, even though it is clearly in the Bible. Um, but that doesn't mean throw it out. Put it in its place. Keep it in its lane. Um, um, and there's and think of it as old wine. It's the vintage stuff. It's nice. Um, and it has things you can get from it. Um, but the new wine, the things Jesus has to say, this new covenant, these red letters, Make sure to put them in a place by themselves and don't put anything else with them. They don't need anything else with them, for one. And it putting anything else with them would only be confusing, I think. But we know that that was the last verse in this chapter, so that's where we're in this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I appreciate you for, you, for it. I love you for it. And God willing, I'll see you next time. Stay safe. Peace be with you.